2: Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft.
6: I'm Jenny Brentis.
5: And I'm Connor Roar. And guys, we are through the week six Sunday slate here, and we had a day of some blowouts, some games that were not particularly close, not particularly interesting, and that's just the way it goes sometimes. But we had a couple of overtime games, we had a couple of absolute thrillers here, so uh, while we normally start with Sunday night, we're going to hold off on that one for a little bit, and we are going to start with what ended up being, you know, it was kind of a Uh, kind of a slow-paced sort of, uh, you know, situational football battle here in Foxborough, but it ends up being one of the most thrilling games I can remember seeing in the regular season. So let's start off with that one.
1: Cowboys Patriots.
5: All right, so I was jotting down notes for this game as it was sort of, uh, you know, it was midway through the fourth quarter, kind of wrapping up. And I'd written down like, oh, what what a Bill Belichick type of win. Sort of outmanned here, but they win through situational football, third down defense. Uh, they get a takeaway in the red zone. Uh, you know, it's just a real classic, uh, you know, Patriots sort of overachieving type of victory. And then everything just went completely haywire in the last three minutes of regulation and overtime here.
6: Yeah, it was a crazy finish to the game, particularly the sequence in which Trevon Diggs gets the interception, returns it for a touchdown, and then Mac Jones turns around and throws a 75-yard touchdown pass. It was a wild swing of events. Obviously, for the Cowboys, it was a really big win to be able to go into Foxborough, even if it's a diminished version of the Patriots and extend their winning streak. Uh, But I also thought it was a good game for the Patriots. And that sequence we just described showed exactly what you want in a quarterback. For a rookie quarterback like Jones to be able to make that kind of turnaround and to Throw a touchdown pass to not be scared to throw in that situation. Clearly, there were some coverage issues on that play by the Cowboys that allowed for the score to happen. But Jones showed confidence throughout the game, and I thought yet yeah, this was yet another encouraging performance in a loss, like the Bucks uh, game was.
7: Yeah, it really should have been a win for the Patriots. And interestingly enough, like Jones probably wouldn't have had to throw the football. Um, at all uh, for that first pick six had they not had that delay of game penalty before that that pushed them back to the second and 15 and and forced the pass to begin with and so you know while it was obviously like still technically a play that eventually cost them the game I do think if you're the Patriots you have to feel good about Mac Jones like I you know I think he was five of six on all passes beyond 10 yards so he hit almost all of his deep shots his average yards per attempt are going up every week over the last three weeks. And I think it was over 10 yards in attempt this week, which is like three and a half yards better than his, uh, than his previous high. Like all these are like non rookie plotting things. Like these are good, like average quarterback um, moving the ball kinds of things. And so I, I think you have to be happy for the Patriots and in two out of the last three weeks, you hung with two of the best three teams in football. So and with an underman roster, there's no other way to say it. And so I think you have to feel pretty good about it. And nobody's running away with the AFC East right now. So I I don't know. I I think not all is lost for this year, but certainly not in the grand scheme of things for the Patriots either.
5: I just love the psychology of going at Travon Diggs with a double move right after the what seemed like it was the game winning pick six. Uh, I don't know who, who better to pick on at that point, who's going to play with more just uh, sort of brash overconfidence at that moment uh, in their life than, than the guy who just basically won the game with it. So uh, that was neat. As far as the Cowboys go, obviously, Trevon Diggs made a great play on that pick six throws a little bit high and wide. He takes advantage and takes it back for the touchdown. But uh, we've sort of talked about this a couple times this year where Dak Prescott has been excellent in the season but he also, he hasn't had to do a lot. I mean, and that's a good thing. That's good when Dak Prescott only throws the ball 25 times in a week and uh, and they win anyway. This was a game where they needed him to do more and he did more and he accomplished it. I mean, he he ended up dropping back more than 50 times. Uh, he ends up throwing for 445. And of course, that uh, includes the game winning uh, deep ball, the CD lamb there that, uh, that ends up being the walk-off play. But it's that's kind of it i mean you know they had to play from behind a little bit they sort of kept on shooting themselves in the foot with penalties uh you know like i said they, they had a a fourth and goal on the goal line where uh deck prescott ends up fumbling it as he reaches over the goal line they turn it over there just a lot went wrong in this game for dallas and yet they end up walking out of foxborough with a win and i think that's a really big deal
6: yeah and notable After the game, Dak Prescott told reporters that he has an injury to his right calf um, and that he could have continued in the game. But calf injuries can be a little bit tricky, so I think it'll be interesting to see um, good timing for the Cowboys to have a bye week so he has a little Mm. bit extra time to rest and recover. Um, But just wanted to mention that going forward for Prescott. But you're right, Gary – this was a game where they had some mistakes. They had dug themselves into a little bit of a hole and they needed a brilliant performance from their quarterback to pull them out of it. And I think he ended up throwing for 450 some yards. So again, that that combined with the number of dropbacks, just a really productive performance for him.
7: It must be incredibly frustrating if you're Dak Prescott that I do think a lot of the conversation is going to center around Mac Jones and that throw that he made, but Dak Prescott is doing some pretty otherworldly things at this point. He's having a pretty phenomenal season. And the emergence of CD Lamb as a real number one has been uh, just a game changer for this offense, I think. You know, they were in a lot of disadvantageous situations at the end of the fourth quarter and in overtime, and they're converting chunk plays, like really big long chunk plays, you know, to get that ball closer for Zerline so he can kick it, I think it was, what, third and 20?
5: Third and 25, at third and 45 25 at that point. Um, yep,
7: And you get CeeDee Lamb in the middle of, you know, I mean, this is presumably still, regardless of how bad the roster is, Belichick's wheelhouse, he's going to have the coverage dial, the right coverage dial up there, um, and you're still beating that. Um, and then you're obviously, you know, winning the game with, with CeeDee Lamb too. And I think that, you know, all this talk about, who's going to end up being kind of the big wide receiver. We had two or three wide receiver classes in a row with all this promise and all this hype. But CD Lamb is quietly just becoming arguably one of the best, if not the best, in that whole kind of – I don't know if you want to lump all those guys together for like the last two or three years, but really is, has been tremendous and coming on strong this year.
5: I do want to lump them together. Let's do it. And I, I agree with that. Sentiment. I, I love A.J. Brown, uh, but I think uh, I think CD might be – Gaining ground quickly here. Well, DK what about Metcalf the has his charms. Uh, the rookie Jamar Chase is very good. Uh, it's too early for Jamar Chase, though. Right. I think he's. Fair, I, I, I think I think he's going to be in that conversation by uh, I don't know. Let's just let's. I was going to say let's let's put a completely arbitrary date on it. I think by like I don't know Memorial Day weekend. I think we'll be able to put him in this class.
6: June first.
5: Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Well, regardless, that is a uh, that is an excellent win for the Cowboys, who sit at five and one, and just uh, there's so much separation between them and the rest of the NFC East. Which is, I don't know. I mean, it was within the realm of possibility, but after last season, it was kind of like we're not quite sure about this team. Well, it seems it seems like we're pretty sure about it at uh, at this point. This is uh this is a team that's going to be among the contenders in the NFC.
7: But are they? did they solve the fundamental issues that caused the coaching change in the first place, right? Like they were very talented under Jason Garrett, but they would do weird things at the end of games that would close gaps and force games that were not supposed to be competitive to be competitive. They blew out the giants last week, notwithstanding, but Mike McCarthy still seems pretty good at making games that should not be competitive, somewhat competitive. And really you should be running over it this Patriots team. And so it's hard, like it's hard to give them too much credit. And I think that the mark that Dan Quinn has left on this team has been undeniable. This defense is much better despite the fact that they haven't had that large of an infusion of talent, but I'm still like the one thing that is holding me back from going all in on this team and falling in love with this team is the same thing that held me back when Jason Garrett was their head coach. Like I still don't feel that like marked like that assurance that you have with the head coach going into a game like you might with like, I don't know, John Harbaugh or, you know, Bill Belichick, you know, two years ago or, you know, anything like that.
5: That's fair, except for the fact that I think I would have said the same thing about the coaching staff that won the Super Bowl last year, minus the defensive coach they have there. True. So... That's, that's the way it goes sometimes. And look, I, I think Mike McCarthy has had in game management issues. I don't, I mean, I don't know. We'll see. It, it could, look, if it pops up in a January game, uh, now you have a big problem. Uh, but it's, it's kind of a wait and see type of thing. And I do think it's kind of thing. Same thing with Andy Reid. For years, you know, Andy Reid's uh, clock management was this huge thing. And now it's not anymore because it sort of, it just sort of works itself out. When you make a lot of mistakes, like even if you're not actively trying to learn to do it better, you just learn to do it better because you're like, oh, right, I screwed up when I did this. I should not do it that way again.
7: You're my editor. You should know that that's not necessarily true, right? <laughs> Anyone who edits me on a regular basis <laughs> knows that no matter how many times you tell me to stop doing certain things, it's just going to happen. My clock management issues are perpetual. <laughs>
4: Anyone can win. Relationships matter. And only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Cardinals Browns.
5: Boy, a rough day for Browns believers like myself. (laughs) I jumped on Connor's bandwagon, and now they're 0-2 since I did. Uh this was uh, this was a game in which they they I'll, I'll throw out all the excuses early they had neither of their starting tackles so they had uh, you know you're going up against JJ Watt and Chandler Jones with with two backups at offensive tackle that's a huge problem uh, Baker Mayfield has a non throwing shoulder injury uh, it did flare up at one point when he took a strip sack from uh, from JJ Watt but uh, uh, when it boils down to it they hosted the Cardinals, and the Cardinals were just better than them, and I, I, I guess we'll start with uh, kind of the Baker side of this conversation and the fact that we're, we're just still not quite there with this Browns offense, although maybe this was a day where we were not going to find out any real answers because they had uh, some limitations with the offensive line.
6: Well, I think that statement alone speaks to your question, Gary, because this was a day when they couldn't run the ball like they have been running the ball. They were missing both of their tackles, as you mentioned. They went into the game without Nick Chubb, and Kareem Hunt got hurt during the game. So when the Browns' offense doesn't have a strong run game, it loses its identity. And so then I think that does go back to the quarterback, right? So here was a day when – they couldn't be have that anchor of a strong ground game. So what is the quarterback not doing that doesn't allow them to succeed when they're missing that element of their offense?
7: That's a great point. And it was weird, right? We saw Freddie Kitchens era Baker uh, today. And what that is, is like, you know, he, that first read isn't there whatever isn't visible and then it's like this this instinct to float backwards in a way and to the point where it's disadvantageous and then you still are convinced that you're going to be able to make a play i think that is still like an element of his game like I, I'm, I'm not saying it's it's manzelian but it's like it's pre manzellian or post Manzellian, whatever you want to call it but there is that element of that that is still hard for him to shake um and what What's interesting to me is like they almost abandoned and perhaps the injuries forced them to do so but the beauty of this offense for so long was that everything was out on schedule like the, mm-hmm. when his back foot hit on that third step the ball was out and so and baker's accurate so it was great everything was working out for the browns because he was doing exactly what you needed him to do but when you ask him to do what Freddie Kitchens asked him to do, or you know, the Browns were in empty sets and and three wide, four wide, pretty early in this game, even when they were down seven. If you're asking him to be that guy, I just don't think he's that guy, which is probably bad news for the pro extension crowd, as Jenny kind of alluded to. it, But also, like, it's just not how you win football games with him, and has never really been how you win football games with him.
5: Yeah, it, and look you think of the Browns, you think of the Titans, you think of these teams that uh, they do, they have to stay on schedule from a, from a down to down standpoint, they have to stay on schedule as far as the game goes. Uh, they had a couple early turnovers and all of a sudden they're down three possessions early in the second quarter. And anything you planned on doing kind of goes out the window at this point. Uh, the other thing I want to bring up, with the Browns and I promise we'll get to the Cardinals who are 6 and 0 and deserve much more praise than uh than we're probably going to give them in this segment. But uh when I was kind of a little bit down on the Browns. I was not bullish on the Browns. Uh not as bullish as as some uh whether on this show or or whether <laughs> elsewhere in the world. So I was worried about the melding of that back seven. Uh, Just, I I like all the talent. It's just a lot of new faces. I think that stuff can sort of fall apart uh, early on when you're sort of getting used to uh, uh, playing with a new group of guys. It didn't really matter early in the season because the front four had been so dominant that it, it, you know, you could, uh, the three of us could have been on the, on the back line for the Browns. They would have been fine. Uh, What ended up happening today, the Cardinals Offensive line did a solid job. The Browns' front four did not take over the game. And what you saw was just awful chaos on the back end for the Browns. Again and again, a lot of blown coverages, a lot of plays that ended with guys pointing at each other, gesturing in frustration to each other. Uh, against the Cardinals, system that really does not do that to you. <laughs> they they don't do I mean, Dondre Hopkins will make plays over you, but they're not going to like fool you and and you know that's just not what they do and the Browns were just a mess and the first two Cardinals touchdowns came on a third and 21 and the second one came on a third and goal from the 13 yard line in which they blitzed and uh and basically forced a quick throw from Kyler I I I put the screenshot up uh DeAndre Hopkins catches it and is still gathering himself at the 10-yard line as three Browns close in on him. And the freeze frame is like you have three Browns like surrounding him with like Rondale Moore the only possible blocker out there, like five foot seven Rondale Moore. And DeAndre Hopkins scores a touchdown on that because all three guys just completely whiff on the tackle and he goes in the end zone. And that's that's the kind of day it was. You had basically uh, you know, Kyler Murray and DeAndre Hopkins doing their thing. And this Browns defense, for the first time, kind of had to deal with that on the back end, and they did not deal with it very well at all.
6: Yeah, since I'm the keeper of receipts on the MMQB podcast, Gary, you did make that exact point about the front (laughs) seven in the preseason or before the season started, so I give you credit for that. It reminds me a little bit of one of my favorite all-time quotes, and it was on one of the Giants teams in between their Super Bowls and they were struggling on defense and they couldn't figure out the safety position and there were just all of these busted coverages in a game against the Eagles, specifically Deshaun Jackson just kept making these wide open deep plays and one of the safeties said afterward, yeah, I was playing my own coverage like everyone else was in cover, too, but I was playing my own coverage. So it did seem like there were some situations where somebody may have been playing their own coverage.
7: It would be nice if the Browns were as good at covering as Gary is at trying to have his cake and eat it, too. Right. <laughs> you can say that you're in on the Browns, but you can also bring up the point that you said you knew what was wrong with them all along. which oh, yeah. is Like, yeah. I mean, this is classic cake having and eating too, you know, and uh so kudos to you. Um but yeah, this is uh this is worrisome uh for the crowd who picked the Browns to either make in or win the Super Bowl. And so <laughs> um I don't know exactly what the fix is. I mean Kareem Hunt is now banged up as well. So you know without that functionality in the run game, um you've turned into uh the the Freddie Kitchens Browns, right? You've you've turned into Jarvis Landry, and Odell Beckham and these kind of long meandering routes that aren't really going to get home, and you know, you know, and everybody's going to jump on the quick stuff because they know that Odell Beckham is still dangerous in space, and so you're sort of one-dimensional again. And I think that that's uh, that's got to be as scary as anything for the Browns.
5: Yeah, I mean, uh, this is a game they lost by 23, and that was including a hail mary touchdown at the end of the first half, which uh, that that usually gives you something of a boost, and instead they just sort of got it handed to them in the second half. Uh, As far as the Cardinals go... I mean look defensively they continue to be excellent uh they had two strip sacks of Baker Mayfield they uh, took advantage of a couple off target throws from Mayfield end up getting four takeaways in this one and really they were just uh they were just harassing Baker the entire game and uh and, and sort of forcing some of these bad plays here even if uh even if the Browns were not playing well offensively and then offensively again it's just Kyle Murray is just creating things at another level and i'm not again i keep on saying i don't know if it's sustainable to keep on saying well we'll get into third and 12 plus and just keep on converting but they kind of keep doing it
6: yeah the cardinals defense has been getting better each week it seems which bodes well for them that you know they have this other unit (laughs) in addition to the playmaking offense right that's bolstering their success Um, and as for the success on offense I was impressed that they did it with Cliff Kingsbury out you know they had a new play calling situation last minute right you don't have a lot of time to prepare for that you know the head coach uh, was out with uh, per COVID protocols that's a difficult situation to go on the road against the team that is a good team and they didn't look like it a lot today, but they're a good team. And uh, to still have that kind of success, I think was pretty impressive.
5: Chargers Ravens. I think the most impressive performance of the day uh, falls to the Baltimore Ravens who uh, I, I don't, I, I don't even know how to, how to sum this up properly, Uh, this was, I'm a big believer in like, if you play on a short week and come off like a physical overtime game, that means big trouble for the next week. So I really thought they were going to have their hands full with the chargers who are obviously playing really good football this season. And I mean, my goodness, uh, the Ravens just completely outclassed them today. This was as impressive a win in a game between two quality teams. I think we've seen this year.
7: Our game for the Staley stands over here. Uh, you know, another club that I'm in that I regret being in at least at this moment right now. And I think that it'll be fun to be in this club again next week and the week after that, just like it'll be fun to be in the Browns club uh, once they start playing some bad teams. But uh, yeah, I I couldn't believe it. Um, I couldn't believe, uh, you know, the Ravens are literally just rolling out this platoon of, you know, castaway veteran tailbacks and they're gutting uh, the Chargers a really good defense and The way that they, uh, this was a Patrick Ricard game, which is always fun, Um, but the way that they utilized him as a blocker to just clear things out today was second to none. Uh, Rashad Bateman got in a little bit um, and got into the mix, the first round pick. Uh, Mark Andrews continues to just be a force for this team. And as undermanned as they are right now, um, Baltimore is first place in the AFC North and just shows no signs of slowing down. And it's just phenomenal to me that, every little thing that we have always said that Lamar Jackson can't continue to do every week he does and gets even better at it. You know, I I mean, I was just thinking today, like the sidearm pass was like this cause for alarm three years ago when he was doing this. And now like, he's literally like hooking it around the helmets of like defenders, like a, like a free kick in soccer. And it's like incredible. And he's just doing it on third down just to convert a third down for, for you-know-whats and giggles. It's, It's tremendous. I mean, I think he's building a platform for an MVP candidate season again.
6: Yeah, it was really amazing to me, Connor, just how the offense from week to week is different. And I think this complexity of the offense has been what has elevated them in 2021 and I think also to your point about the run game 187 yards from a trio of running backs that were like in their prime and like I don't know 2015 (laughs) 2014 like this is really remarkable (laughs) like they just they lost their entire running back depth chart essentially in training camp and they're just rolling on as if That doesn't matter, which, you know, I think is part of the point of pride for John Harbaugh in continuing on the now snapped streak of 100-yard rushing games. It was snapped last week, but here they come back again with 187. (laughs) I hope I'm quoting that exact number right because I've said it now twice, but um, it has been um, remarkable to me how they've continued to find ways to win, whether that be new aspects of Lamar Jackson's game or players who didn't expect to be in the league this year or whatever the case may be, the Ravens are just figuring
5: it out. Touchdowns for Le'Veon Bell, Devontae Freeman, and Latavius Murray. That was definitely someone's first, second, and fifth round fantasy (laughs) picks in 2015. Are you sure
7: Jamal Charles didn't get in there (laughs) somewhere along the line?
6: Also, I just realized that I accidentally made a figure-it-out pun, and that was not intentional at all. I said the Ravens are just figuring it out, which is, you know, kind of funny because this was <laughs> the year defenses were supposed to figure Lamar out. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They are.
5: They're all, every time they play the Ravens, the Lamar does something, and then after the play, every defensive coach is like, I knew he was going to do that. And that's that's figuring it out. Uh As far as the Chargers go, I mean, you pretty much just throw this game out at this point. This was uh, clearly their worst performance. Uh, The most alarming thing to me was uh, another missed point after touchdown. And on the same day on which Michael Badgley is just money uh, down in Houston kicking for the Colts. So, uh, you know, a lot of things to, to think about. And by the way, Badgley was in Indianapolis, not in Houston. Even tougher venue to kick in which is not true, but I'm going to throw it out there.
7: It's a tough day. I mean, uh, like I've said in this podcast, one of my favorite things to do on Mondays uh, really gets my week started the right way is to listen to Brandon Staley's post-game speeches. Um, You know, they get me fired up. Uh, They make me feel like I'm part of the team, and I will not get that this week. And so that's something that the Ravens and John Harbaugh have robbed me of. But to his credit, though, uh, I will say that it was kind of cool that he was going for it in fourth and one on his own 19 in this game. Like, if you're going to go down, like, really, like, go down, you know, um, and and die with the fact that, uh, you know, because he said this is – every time I go for it on fourth and one, it has nothing to do with the analytics. It has everything to do with my faith in you guys as an offense. And, like, if you're going to go down, you have to go down that way. And I do appreciate the fact that, like, when he's losing these games, he does not pack up the wagon, like, a la Jason Garrett in like 2017 and just be like, well, there's no chance and go home. You know, there is, there is an aggressiveness there. There is like a constant effort. And I still do think he maintains a spot on my pedestal of most exciting young coaches.
6: No, definitely Connor. And I'm glad you brought up the fourth and one decision because I was going to talk about that as well. This was the first time that his aggressiveness did not pay off, Um, but you can still celebrate the decision, which you have, It came at a point in the game when they really needed points. Um, I agree with you with that. I think it's great. He has confidence in his offense. He's basically saying there's almost no way I can give Justin Herbert four chances to gain 10 yards and he won't be able to do it. Now, in this case, it didn't work and it looked like a bad decision. Um, It was certainly way outside the norm of anything we generally see in the NFL. So he's definitely shaking things up. Um, but ultimately, that was not what decided the game. I mean, the offense got off to a slow start, and as we reference, the run defense just couldn't hold up.
7: What a wonderful day this would have been to be like a, a newspaper columnist in Los Angeles in like 1995, you know, and just tee off on analytics. Like after he goes for like an one <laughs> like that, like if you're a cro- if you were a crotchety old columnist, you know, with like your Crappy laptop at the stadium, like that would have been the best thing that's happened to you in years, you know. And you would just fly through a column like that, you know. So I think about those people on days like that. Was, you know, good for them. If they, hop if they, if hop,
5: hop in the car and write it while you drive. That's how you <laughs> do it back in '95. <laughs>
0: Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Seahawks-Steelers.
0: So the
5: Sunday night game had a real, I don't know, like a 1991 type of throwback feel, like a, a, lot, of, a lot of physical running and stuff like that. But uh, when it was all said and done, it was essentially just T.J. Watt decided he was going to win the game.
6: Well, maybe that's a throwback feel in itself, right? You know, another great Steelers defender. But yeah, TJ Watt really took over the game in overtime. He had the sack that ended the Seahawks' first possession, and then he made the forced fumble that ultimately decided the game. We wrote about this last year, and we talked to TJ Watt about how he has such a knack for forcing the ball out. Of course, immediately after he wrote about the story, his numbers dipped a little bit in 2020, but they are back on the rise in 2021. And I mean, he practices this, he studies this. And TJ Watt used to play offense, so he said that informed his understanding of how ball carriers carry the ball, when they might be most vulnerable, what angles are best to swipe at it. I mean, a lot of it's random and you're just kind of, you know, trying to get a hand in there, but he does practice this. And I remember that the defensive line coach, Carl Dunbar, said last year that, the running backs will get annoyed with him in practice because he tries this on them and sometimes he finds some other balls. So, you know, this is clearly a, um, something that he works at and has done a very good job at and it showed up in a big moment when the Steelers really needed it.
7: Yeah. I mean, ruined the, um, I'm waiting two weeks now for the Geno Smith redemption train to come into the station. Thought uh, maybe last week when he supplanted Russell Wilson in that game, that we would have seen some sort of Geno Smith moment Um, this time. Unfortunately, again, uh, it was robbed of that. I'm just waiting for him to have a moment. Like, I think he deserves like a, a, like a moment, you know, you get drafted by the jets and then you kind of just, start this little wayward career after some of the unfortunate things that happened to him and we don't have to get into all of them, but you know, I just, uh, I was looking forward to him having it a little moment. That's all.
5: I don't want to speak for you guys on this, but I would, I would personally like to see this be a pro Geno Smith podcast. I, uh, I think Gino never got a fair shake and I'm surprised. I'm just surprised he never landed in that spot where it was like, you know, like the bridge guy type of role. Like, uh, you know, a Tyrod Taylor type of a thing or a Ryan Fitzpatrick type of thing just for a year. Maybe it would go horribly and then it's done. But he just he had those two years with the Jets and then that was it. And this will be probably his first opportunity since uh, his second year in the league to actually have a string of starts here. And he was he was fine in this. I mean, you're not going to ask too much of your quarterback, uh, especially a, a guy who's your second string quarterback in a game in Pittsburgh against that pass rush against Keith Butler's looks. Uh, But yeah, I mean, you know, he, he was, he was fine in this game. It was just, it was a bummer that it ended the way that it did.
6: Yeah. I mean, they fell into an early hole in the first half and he clawed them out of the hole. You know, a lot of players have fallen victim to, a great defensive player like TJ Watt. And I think Geno's performance was really strong all night. It just had a bad ending.
7: Some smart play design too there. Like they had a lot of the throws where they would run RPO plays, but then have him not throw to the RPO wide receiver. So he had some kind of open looks on the outside and they were moving the ball a little bit, but yeah, it was fun. And I totally, I second the motion. If, if you're bringing the motion to the floor, I second the motion. For a pro Gino, pro Danny Dimes. Well, we're gonna have to bring a new motion because it's a new podcast. But the, Jenny and I came from a pro Danny Dimes podcast, and so you know m- maybe we'll get that all that stuff worked out in uh, in in another pre show meeting.
5: We do. We have to formalize the list. We have to go through uh, the proper vetting process for everyone. But mm-hmm. I, I think I like the direction this is going, and I think Gino Smith will like the direction it's uh, going in as far as his uh, pending approval. By this podcast. I
7: spent, uh, when I worked for the NFL, I, for like two weeks, one week, I just didn't want to use Twitter anymore, and so all I did was retweet Geno Smith for like two weeks to see if anyone would notice instead of adding anything to the to the conversation, and it was a great two weeks. He's got some good <laughs> tweets. So.
6: Did anyone notice? No. <laughs> <laughs> Twitter accounts, overrated.
5: Mm-hmm. raiders broncos well all right guys rich basaccia cannot be beaten as a head coach here uh the raiders go into denver and and really dominate the broncos in this one and i think it's always kind of interesting we usually see it late in the season with interim head coaches and and see how the team reacts and stuff like that and this was such a uh, it's such an unprecedented situation that unfolded with John Gruden uh resigning uh in light of his his racist uh anti-LGBTQ and misogynistic emails that came to light but uh the Raiders players certainly responded to whatever Rich Picciia had to to say to them and they are they are back on track at 4 and 2 here
6: yeah this was really interesting Gary because i had picked against the Raiders in this game, even though I think they're a better team than the Broncos, because I thought maybe the emotional toll of this week, recognizing that the person who's led your team over the last few years had engaged in this kind of hate speech. But what we saw today was almost like I could – maybe it's a leap too far, and I'm certainly projecting, but it was almost like a measure of of saying – rejecting what gruden did like hey listen we're good on our own um like it was almost a statement against him right like we can win a game in a big way and perhaps the frustrations that players on the team felt including carl Nassib, who took a day to collect himself uh he's openly gay and of course gruden's comments were anti-lgbtq um so I i think there could be a lot of players in the locker room rallying around the you know what this was a a person who did a lot of bad things who was leaving us and now we're on our own and this is our own ship and we're going to take it in our own direction again that is maybe a leap too far and it's certainly extrapolating but it's hard not to look at that performance and what transpired last week and not wonder how that played a role
7: it's not uh it You make a fantastic point. It's like the game after when a team fires a coach in the middle of the season, like for performance reasons. And and it's like the game after that, like when the Browns fired Hugh Jackson and Freddie or Greg Williams took over with Freddie Kitchens as a play caller. And I think they put Mm -hmm. up like a ton of points and you're more aggressive. uh, You come out with more fire. Like it's almost like a weight has been lifted off your shoulders. And this is interesting because, you know, Jay Glazer reported on the Fox morning show that there were players that did go to Gruden's house to visit him and to say that they were going to miss him. But I don't think the other story, part of that story is necessarily addressed in the fact that like to Jenny's point, I think there were probably a lot of players that were glad that he was gone. And, you know, I did a story, um, when Gruden was hired in, uh, in then Oakland, talking to some of the players in Tampa Bay that he had. And that was their biggest complaint about him. is like, yeah, there were some guys that loved John Gruden, like loved John Gruden, but, there were a lot of people who did and there were a lot of people who thought he was, you know, uh, I don't know whether really, you like the quote was two faced, right. That he would say one thing to you and then do something else. And I think the emails certainly bear that out that you insist that you're not this kind of person, but decades worth of correspondence, you know, almost a decade's worth of correspondence proves otherwise. And so I think it's just that uh, it's interesting. Like, I think that from the Gruden perspective, this could be uh, an uplift. Um, but uh, the other thing that Rich uh, Pisaccia did was he cried at his opening press conference which is a great move for a new head coach and I think that fires people up too so that was a solid maneuver and I think that goes a long way towards uh, winning the game You got to get emotional at your opening press conference. I think that's that's the, that's what you got to do.
5: It was a uh, it was a busy week for crying coaches here worked out for one of them, not so much for another one. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, as far as this game went, look, it was it was not a game where it was like, oh, yeah, they got some breaks, got some bounces. And I mean, look, this defense, I'm not sure what Gus Bradley is is doing there. I, I don't know how he was sort of. Able to unleash what had been a completely non-existent pass rush, but uh, I mean they were they were swarming Teddy Bridgewater in this one. It's just a it's a different feel for this team up front. Maybe it's the uh, uh, maybe it's the the addition of a Yannick Ngakwe. Maybe it's the emergence of Max Crosby uh, as just sort of a a, a possible star here. But uh, they dominated this game defensively. They got a handful of uh, of big plays offensively, big throws from Derek Carr. Uh, to sort of pull away in this one, and it was never, it was never really in doubt. Chiefs, Washington. So, I actually, I want to throw it to Connor right now because I want you to set up uh, a a correct prediction that I made off air, <laughs> and uh, and and then I get to continue to cherry pick uh, what I say. <laughs> in, in- this was this was more uh this was more exact than uh than my prediction that the browns would go anywhere from three and fourteen to uh the first of four consecutive super Bowl championships. see <laughs> so, yeah, a peek behind the
7: curtain here at the m m q b but during the sunday um uh, I will write uh you know a couple times off of some meaningful games in in the early in the afternoon slates before we start taping the podcast, and so I'll annoy Gary and mitch are other NFL editor on ideas that I might be going to. And when the chiefs were down 13 to 10, um, I was like, you know, this is probably a big deal if this happens. And so we started talking about some chiefs ideas and then Gary said, but all this is null and void when a Jack Del Rio defense inevitably gives up like three straight touchdowns. And within five minutes of that text sending, (laughs) Like this, the game was a complete blowout, and uh, and and Washington was was out of it. So kudos to Gary for uh, for the second week in a row, actually uh, nixing a very uh, uh, easy sort of a tap in column. So, uh, bad job by you all.
5: Is <laughs> oh, that's all I ask for is just constant praise on this <laughs> podcast. So it's nice to get it every once in a while. Uh, yeah, it it was. Look, this was. Just a really interesting day for the Chiefs, and I feel like uh, I want to write something in January where it's kind of like, boy, remember that winter washing? That ended up being like the microcosm of their season because they started so slow and were so sloppy, but then it was like, okay, they just have too much talent and end up just taking over. Uh, It was a really... I guess the question is always, how alarming are sloppy turnovers? Because you would... I think, just sort of step back and say, like, well, look at all this talent. They still have guys who can get open. They still have plays that work. It's not like a team that uh, just isn't good enough. But, I mean, the caliber of turnovers they're having are kind of spectacular at this point in a, uh, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I, I texted this to Connor, that Patrick Mahomes flubbed Snap, and then he tried to sort of toss it, ended up throwing straight up in the air, and ended up being like the easiest interception that any defensive back has ever gotten. If that had happened in like his first start or something like that, or like in his first season, people would have been like, oh, this Patrick Mahomes way too reckless. Got got to get the Alex Smith back there in the lineup for the Chiefs.
6: Yeah, and there have been a lot of those for the Chiefs this year, which is really uncharacteristic. So I, I see your point, Gary. At what point are you like, at some point, point this is going to even out and there aren't going to make this these kinds of mistakes over and over again this is not what's going to tank the season or is it like some global problem and that they're all just practicing sloppy and these things are showing up on game day which i i don't believe that is true either so i keep trying to think about the this year's chiefs in the context of all of the two and two Patriots teams that we used to see that would then become dominant and run away with things in their division. So uh, not saying that the AFC West is going to be an easy division. It's actually the opposite. It's probably the toughest division in football right now. But um, I keep trying to put that into context that like at some point, the talent will prevail
5: here, right? It did in this one, and you think it would over the course of the season because they did. They they literally went on three consecutive touchdown drives uh, in the second half to to pull away and put this one away against what is just not a very good Washington team, and that probably. Warrant some discussion as well. Just the fact that you know we kind of said, well, you know, this this team, even with Taylor Heineke under center, you know, maybe this is a team that can win a lot of like twenty to seventeen type games because this defense, they're just going to dominate. They, they they put so many resources uh in into what they have up front, and it hasn't worked out that way. They haven't been great up front, and they've been horrible on the back end, just blown coverage after blown coverage. And I'm not really sure how you can possibly Uh, I don't know, uh, uh, figure out how that's happening with a defense this talented.
7: Feisty Tyran Matthew in this one, up and down the sideline, kind of charging at everybody after the Ricky Seals-Jones touchdown um, at the end of the half. Mm -hmm. And uh, this could be one of those moments. I mean, we saw it with the Chiefs when uh, Bob Sutton was their defensive coordinator, too, where things just kind of come to a head. And, you know, things seem okay, things seem... You know, moderate to good, and then all of a sudden they'll have games like this where you know the coverage is exposed in some way, or shape, or form. And Steve Spagnolo is is interesting because you know everyone that you kind of talk to about his defense is like you know kind of playing coverage in his defense is a lot like being in a fast break offense in basketball where you kind of have to switch on the fly a lot. You have to do a lot of um, you know kind of aggressive defending that you know you're not necessarily going to know what happens before the snap, and so this is tough when things start going south in a defense like this sometimes you're already doing too much you're already overworked you're already angry and upset and confused and this is a tough defense to play when you know your back's already against the wall um, and so i think uh, you know it's it's much easier when your offense is scoring 35 points a game and bailing you out and the spotlight
2: is not really
0: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Packers Bears.
5: So listen, I don't have a ton on this game, except for the fact that Aaron Rodgers scored that touchdown to put the Packers up 10 with 430 to go, and then just started (laughs) taunting the crowd with... I still own you was the quote. Uh, There was also some other things that uh, were profane that we won't run down. But uh, the message was, I still own you. And he has won... (laughs) I mean, I don't know if this is, it's expected when I looked it up, but it's still just sort of mind-blowing because, you know, these are these are division rivals and they see each other, they should know each other, they should play close games. When you play a lot of close games, uh, you know, sometimes a bounce or two goes the other way and that's the way it goes, but he's won 10 of his last 11 trips to Soldier Field now uh, and I I don't know what else to say about it, it's just, he's... He's better than everything Chicago throws at him every time. (laughs) He said after the
7: game that a woman was giving him two middle fingers. So he was, I guess, in a way, talking directly to her, but to everybody um, when he said (laughs) what he said. I, I just thought it was a hilarious thing to do. Like, I mean, granted... There's a double standard here where if Justin Fields did that and it was Lambeau Field, they'd kind of be like, what are you talking about? This is your first game here. But if he did something like that, I think everyone would be very upset and up in arms. And this is sort of a uniquely, I'm a 38-year-old quarterback who might not ever come back here and play again so I can say whatever I want kind of way. And he did admit that before the game when he was warming up, He did take into consideration the fact that this could be his last game at Soldier Field. And so I guess there was just like a lot of emotions there. But on the flip side, it it wasn't necessarily like a super dominant performance. Like the Packers have not been as dominant as we expected them to be. So it was sort of an odd time to pull the insult out. I mean, I guess you're going to, if you're going to do it, you have to do it whenever, like, you know, it's like uh, when you're Carol Owens and you have the Sharpie in your pants, like you just got to use it, you know, if the Sharpie's in your pants. But like, uh, I don't know. I, I thought it was funny, but I also thought it was like, if if you're everyone there, you're kind of like, man, you're not really beating us by that much. I don't really understand what's going on.
6: Yeah. Maybe it's a little bit of a speak it into existence type thing. Right. I mean, not his record against the Bears, but just this idea of this dominant team that can taunt whoever they want. Well, not of their players, but any other fan bases that they want, right?
5: I don't know. I think the I think they weren't winning by that much type of argument. It, it sort of falls in the same category. There's that one uh, uh, that episode of The Simpsons where they have the rivalry with Shelbyville. And one of the insults that one of the Shelbyville guys mutters under his breath is maybe that's why we beat him in football nearly half the time, and it's just kind of like it's got, he beat them again, they just keep on beating him every time they go there uh and yeah, I think that's just I think that's just it, and I really think there's something to be said for again, the bears are not like this is not like the jets and the Patriots or or uh, well maybe jets aren't the best example since they uh since they went into Foxborough and won some games as you guys would know but this isn't like some bottom feeder team for a decade I mean the Bears have been to the playoffs a couple of times just every time Aaron Rodgers goes social field he wins he's won 10 of 11 that should it just shouldn't happen I don't know yeah that, that's 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 what I think yeah about it. I
6: guess what I was trying to say is like this is a time when he's at peak strength right when he's playing the Bears mm-hmm. so you want to sort of acknowledge and flaunt that peak strength because maybe your team isn't at peak strength right now right I mean they're, they're good obviously like they've been on a roll and they are one of the best teams in the NFL but they're not at peak strength so let's try to channel this moment when you dominate <laughs> the Bears and you know kind of recognize it and put it out there and give a clip that everyone can get kind of hyped about
7: reminds me of when you brought up the Simpsons quote, Gary. There was a kid that went to the same pool as me in uh, grade school and we used mm-hmm. to play nukem against each other. Do you know what nukem is? Are you familiar with nukem?
5: Uh Yes, but I don't remember. Nukem is old. like
7: volleyball, but you don't have to hit it, so you, you throw it over to the other side and you have to have it bounce twice and the other person has to just catch okay. it for it. And I would always play this kid, and he would say the same thing after every game. He'd say, "I beat you, and now I can tell anyone that I beat you by whatever score I want." And I said, "No, like you can't say that. You have to say that you beat me ten to nine because that was the score." And he said, "No, when I win, I get to say whatever the score is that I want." (laughs) And actually, what a a bizarre child! I actually tweeted that once. because uh, it upset me so much and someone instantly direct messaged me and said was it this kid and it was and so he was a Whoa. serial offender and also a child of scram political privilege but that that uh, uh unbeknownst to uh, anyone else but um so i would say that like it's kind of like that with rogers where it's like it doesn't matter what the score was i got my moment out of it i got my mm. mojo and now the Packers, like, that are going to go <laughs> now off.
6: Now
5: I'm feeling and, it. Yeah. I'm feeling it. Yep. And, and now, now he can tell people that he won that game 78 to nothing.
6: <laughs> that's right. Exactly. I love it. Perfect. Analogy. <laughs> that,
5: that's going to stick with me, Connor. That really bothers it, me. <laughs> on I your think behalf. about it once a week, and it makes me <laughs> curious. Yeah. Vikings, Panthers. All right, I want to open up this one. This is an overtime Vikings win down in Carolina, uh, but I want to I want to pay Kirk Cousins a compliment uh, because he, he's earned it, and that's just what we do here. Uh, so this season, there have been six scenarios where Kirk Cousins had to drive for a game-tying or game-winning score with less than two minutes on the clock or in overtime, and he has accomplished that feat three times, although now two of those times he has put them within field goal range and Greg Joseph has missed a, a short field goal. So in a way he's, he's gone like five for six on these really difficult late game drives. And for a team that seems just completely content to uh, no matter what the scenario end up playing a uh, one possession game in the final minutes, that's a big deal. And, and look, you know, the, the, debate rages on with Kirk cousins. How good is he? Do they, do they uh, bring him back on another contract? Whoever it might be, but he is, he's delivering this year, even for a team that is maybe not delivering so much around him.
7: Yeah. It, and really just, you know, this was a season where they drafted Kellen Mond and it seemed like he might've been slightly more than a, uh, just a, a Whatever you want to call it like an advanced backup like someone that they might hope could actually take over at some point. but he continues to have these moments where it's almost like Prescott on uh, on Sunday against the uh, the Patriots where you need x amount of yards and he's going to get it and granted he has arguably the best receiver tandem in the league or one of the two or three best receiver tandems in the league so you should say that in a good running game so you should say that it should be possible but We've seen other quarterbacks with the same skill set and the same talent, relatively speaking, that cannot get that 20 to 30 yards to get the team in the field goal range. And he does this despite knowing the fact that regardless of what happens, the Vikings are going to miss the field goal at the end of the game and break his (laughs) heart. And so I give Kirk Cousins a lot of credit. I think it's a, it's a phenomenal thing.
6: It's also one of those things where if the quarterback can do it under this circumstance, what do you need to do to replicate that in other aspects of the game? Particularly, (laughs) should you be more aggressively calling things in other parts of the game? Um, I mean, you know, you you hear it a lot, and I think there is something about that situation at the end of the game. Hurry up, and the adrenaline's pumping, and you just kind of have to do it and not think as much. There are a number of factors that can result in a quarterback being able to make throws and gain yardage in that situation versus other situations in the game. But maybe they're being too conservative in play calling in other drives that are not this high pressure cooker situation.
5: I think there is something very, uh, <laughs> Very acute about that observation right there. Uh and and this will this will transition nicely into our next game, but I do want to point out they had a so they they were protecting a lead, they were up eight, there were uh three minutes left. They were facing a third and eight at the Panthers thirty three. If they got a first down, the game was basically sealed. And they ran the ball. And I know Jason Garrett did not make a guest play call because he was over <laughs> in East Rutherford at the time. I know that for sure, but it was just, it was so me. Dalvin cook lost three yards on the run, but it was just kind of like, Oh my God, you could have, you could have just thrown for a first down and picked up the first down and ended the game. Uh, but they sort of did the run then punt and Sam Darnold and his defense uh, ended up getting the long drive, the two point conversion. And, and this went to overtime instead, but yeah, maybe, maybe Kirk Cousins is, you know, worthy of having a little more on his plate at this point. And to counter that though,
7: Gary, right, there was a third and four where he threw that sort of sideline back shoulder. Like he threw like almost a deep sideline shoulder back fade to, um, to Adam Thielen. And then they missed that subsequent field goal. Um, and so maybe that was Mike Zimmer's way of saying like, I give you one of those a game and then you're never allowed <laughs> to do it again. If you don't pick up the first down, he seems like one of those, like uh, coaches that kind of has these like fun, hard and fast
5: parent rules. Like you get one and then that's it. Rams Giants. So the Rams won this game handily. uh, And we've, we've said a lot of nice things about the Rams over, uh, over the course of the season. And I'm sure we'll continue to do so, but we're going to focus mostly on the Giants here. And uh, look, you guys know the organization better than me, uh, but what, are we looking at right now? Because Daniel Jones, look, he, he was a little bit shaky in this one, uh, but he has had an excellent season so far. I, I think it, you would be very bullish on his future based on what he's done in 2021. And yet this team is not good at football. And I'm not sure what exactly they they plan on doing as a solution at this point.
7: It's a great question, right? And, and what what can you do? Um, my suggestion was, it's and it's a difficult ask, right? But it's to it's to ask Dave Gettleman to do the selfless thing again. Dave Gettleman during the draft did one of the most selfless things we've ever seen an executive do, and that's trading a f- back in the first round to get a future pick that you might not even be the acting general manager of to use. And so, I think you need to ask him to trade some of these players at the date, at the deadline. Like I think you're one in five Um, Joe judge. uh, uh, One of the players said afterwards that at halftime, Joe judge told them all that their roster spots were not guaranteed. And so I'm not saying that he's intimating. There's going to be some sort of trade deadline purge, but like he's clearly lost this locker room to some degree. Um, And so you either, you have to assume that like either you're going to blow this whole thing up or Joe Judge needs more help than he has now. And either way, you're going to need picks. And I don't know. I just don't see Jason Garrett unlocking Saquon Barkley. If he's healthy enough to get moved by the trade deadline, I would move him. Evan Ingram is a guy like Zach Ertz just went for a fifth-round pick. You probably move Evan Ingram at this point. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I think you do something like that to shake things up a little bit.
6: Wow, there's really no better way to build morale for the second half than to tell players at halftime that you may lose your job. That's just a really interesting leadership style, which kind of brings me to what I was about to say is I think you have to look at the coaching staff. And unfortunately, the Giants have cycled through head coaches rapidly. And I don't get the sense that ownership wants to be a team that is now known for cycling through head coaches rapidly. But when Daniel Jones has done what you've asked and has put himself in a position to lead the team to what could be a better point, And yet that's not happening. Um, and there's issues on in all phases, Right. Um, a lot of that blame should go on to the coaching staff and so, what do you do? You know, do you look to make a change yet again? What are you doing differently in this hiring process that has failed you in the last few i I don't know the right answer, but the giants keep trying to reclaim what they were in 2007 and 2011 and they're just not able to do it so maybe it's trying to do things a totally different way
7: for a minute I thought you were going to say make Daniel Jones also the head coach and I said (laughs) Danny
6: yes do things a different
7: way uh but uh no I I completely agree because we've seen this and it's so obvious and, and they deny it time in and time out but you know everything seems to be an effort to sticking to the past. You know, the hire of, um, the hire of Joe Judge was cl- clearly played on the Giants fans' deep woven love of Tom Coughlin and Bill Parcells, that hard, that hard dude who's going to come in and, and be mean to everybody. And, you know, for some reason, Giants fans just love that. They love that aesthetic. They love that feel. But it doesn't work anymore. It really, like, I I was talking to someone about this recently. If Joe Judge fails, he's the last tough guy head coach I think that's ever hired in in the NFL. Like, uh, until, I mean, cyclically, everything comes around. And so 30 years from now, like, it'll be a, a fun thing again. And everyone said, what about Dan Campbell? I mean, Dan Campbell's, like, crying at the podium. Like, he's a tough guy by virtue, but is not afraid to, you know, be honest and open and, you know, kind of share his feelings on everything. Joe Judge, I think, is the last tough guy, tough guy that is ever going to be hired. Uh, And if this fails spectacularly, which it looks like it's on its way to doing, I think it has to force the Giants to rethink their process. And now you could argue that they almost did. They didn't want to go all the way down the aisle with Matt Rule, but they were close to doing that. Um, And maybe this is a lesson for them to stop, you know, kind of existing in their comfort zone.
5: Bengals Lions. All right, we're going to open up the lightning-ish round here at this point. And I just want to point out to Bengals fans, uh, your team does not belong in the lightning round. But you just happen to play a, a non-competitive game against a, uh inferior opponent. And on the other side of it, I just want to point out, like... The Bengals are not in this class anymore. I I think, uh, you know, we used to sort of reflexively put the Bengals in that bottom third, maybe bottom five of teams in the league. Uh, They're not there anymore. They're beating those teams now. And they're sitting at four and two. And people are going to say, well, they haven't really beaten anyone. But for, you know, good teams, teams that are sitting at four and two, they beat bad teams. And that's, you know, the Bengals are no longer a bad team. They're one of the good teams. That's that's my take on the Bengals.
7: Another masterful job of Gary having his cake and eating it too, saying the Bengals don't belong in this section of the podcast, but you wrote the outline. You put (laughs) them in this section of the podcast. (laughs) Move them up, Gary.
6: I mean, Uh, Bengals fans are still mad at me for my too low power ranking a few weeks ago. So
7: I picked them to win three games. I've been reminded of that several times already. Um, But I do have to say that this has to be, if you're Zach Taylor and if you're Duke Tobin, you know, they will always say that they don't read the press or whatever it is. And every coach says that, but you know, it's not true. Um, and you know that they get angry about all these little things, but this has to be one of the most satisfying starts to a season. <laughs> like, you yeah. know, you, you get crushed uh, for drafting Jamar Chase over uh, Penay Sewell. I did a lot of the crushing there. Um, and, you know, Sewell turns out to be middling so far as a player, but, you know, could end up developing. Jamar Chase is like the most exciting rookie receiver we've seen since Odell Beckham. Everyone says Jamar Chase can't catch in training camp and it's all over and he's just phenomenal. And, uh, and everyone says they're going to be in last place and they're just playing really well. So I, I think this is a uh, totally satisfying kudos Bengals have your moment in the very bottom section of this podcast.
6: And a quick note on the lines before we move on strong words from Dan Campbell yes. about Jared Goff and You could tell he looked down. There was a long pause, several seconds, and he thought about it. And then he decided to go there. He said, it's, it's too early to totally evaluate him. But then the long pause came and he said, but we need him to do more. He needs to shoulder more of the burden of this team. He needs to do more to get us to try to win a game. And I like that he was honest. It was very refreshing.
7: Dan Campbell is winning press conferences at an alarming rate. And you're right. The theatrical pause was
5: just chef's kiss. Beautiful. Dolphins Jaguar. All right. We go out to London. Another another real gem for our friends overseas there. Sure. Uh <laughs> Trevor Lawrence, was, but he played in this one, and that uh, that went really well. And the Jaguars get on the board here. uh, First win for Trevor Lawrence uh, and a lot of Jaguars players, and Urban Meyer also uh, was a part of this, uh, at least nominally. Uh, The one thing that's kind of wild here for the Jaguars is, I didn't realize this, I'm sure this stack got thrown around a ton, and I just didn't know it, but they had not kicked a field goal this season before this game, which is just... insane to me. And then they ended up Matthew Wright, this sort of street free agent kicker, comes in and goes three for three, including 250-plus in the final minutes, uh, including the 53-yarder as time expired to win it. So uh, exciting times here for the Jaguars.
6: I mean, it was a really entertaining game, Gary. So it wasn't the worst product for our friends in London. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I thought it was illuminating nfl network showed the in-camera locker room and everyone rallied around when one of the players gave trevor lawrence his game ball for his first win of many and then urban meyer spoke and you could just see the energy in the room lag it was uh i don't know it seemed notable um (laughs) you're right
7: because there wasn't like we've seen a lot of coat like um, I was thinking of when the Jets won um, two weeks ago, and watching Robert Sala on the sideline, right? Like he grabbed his security guard and hugged him and lifted him up, and everybody's you know around him and freaking out. And Urban Meyer, like he bent, he like bent his complete like top half of his body forward, like he had injured himself in a game of pickup basketball, and then just like trudged to the middle of the field, and like it wasn't like ah, let's tussle the old ball coach's hair, it was like, all right, you know, you're going to, you're going to be here. And so uh, <laughs> I guess congratulations to you too. Yeah. He, sh-
5: he should have embraced his new shtick and, uh, he should have a red challenge flag to celebrate, uh, every good thing that happens here. <laughs> no,
6: he sh-
7: he should
5: have left. He should have <laughs> taken a different flight home.
6: <laughs> oh man, Connor. Oh man. <laughs> a lot, a lot to read into there. Uh, as for the dolphins, they have a bye week and they have a lot to think about. It has been really a disappointing start for a team that people thought was maybe ready to take the next step.
7: And oddly, though, the weird thing about this Dolphins team in this game for the Dolphins in particular was probably the best Tua Tungavailo has looked in a long time, right? Um, he had one really bad interception, but they were able to pull off perhaps because it was the Jaguars and, you know, they're running this like pseudo NFL scheme, they were able to pull off a lot of the RPOs, a lot of the crossers, a lot of the stuff that Tua can hit with regularity and has always hit with regularity out of Alabama. And you saw him get comfortable. Um, You know, he had the full velocity on some of his balls. And so, I mean, he looked good uh, for large sections of this game. And so it's like, okay, what does this mean? Is this just a flash in the pan thing? Is he going to build over the next few weeks? and at least show the Dolphins fans that there is still like a flicker left in this rebuild, or is this just because it was the Jaguars? The Jaguars are not, uh, the Jaguars should be to, for our London friends, relegated. Um, but they won't be. And, uh, you know, this was just a bad team that they are playing against.
6: Interesting, Connor. I had a little bit of a different read on too. Uh, I thought there were chances in, where I wanted him to do more and I wanted him to put the game away and sustain mm. the drives or not settle for the field goal or whatever the case may be. Um, certainly there were some coaching decisions that were strange, you know, taking a shotgun snap on fourth and two and um, you know, it, it did. And also he's coming back from his rib injury. So you don't want to make too many judgments off of his first game back but I think all of the skepticism about Tua is still there at least I don't think he's done anything to extinguish it at this point
5: it was a very quarterback friendly game here a uh, lot of lot of throwing in traditional rundown and distance situations, a lot of uh, along with the RPO stuff, a lot of play action that involved deep drops, which I think they need to do more with him. Uh, but it, it especially with the Jaguars, scene you know, that just can't rush the passer. It, it kind of turns it into like seven on seven football uh, as much as you can get in the NFL. And these throws, you know, the, the, the ones that are going to the right place, uh, they're sort of he's in wide open spaces They're throws that every NFL quarterback should be making. And that's, and that's, and, 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 uh, I mean, you know, I don't want to take it away from him, but the thing that will, I mean, look, I think it's something he can't overcome. Not only pressure, but even just a threat of pressure, even just a blitzer that he's seeing out of the corner of his eye. It just all falls apart. It's completely erratic. It's just total meltdown. I mean, he he had, along with the interception, he had another throw where he was like escaping left and he had two receivers just sort of wide open right in front of him and he just sort of airmailed it. And It's just a bizarre, again, I don't want to dig down too deep on one throw because then you end up coming to like Josh Allen 2018 type of conclusions about a guy early in his career, but uh, it's still just the same problem, and I also wanted to take this opportunity to point out that Jacoby Brissett actually had the most impressive throw of the game, which was on a fourth and short play Wait, action boy. in which he in which he took coming. a hit. <laughs> yeah. He took a hit, threw it opposite hash. It was very impressive. Yeah, so take this to a
7: diatribe that Gary went on with a grain of salt. He just wrote that Kobe <laughs> Brissett is no longer the starter of the Dolphins. So you got to deal with it. But it's interesting, right? When you when you do a, a big rebuild like this and a teardown and you have all the equity in the cap space, um, someone's got to pay for this. And they're coming in on a bye week. And, you know, obviously, I don't think they're going to do anything rash like make a coaching change. I don't think that they should get rid of Brian Flores. I think he's done a great job, he won 10 games. After out, you know, overcoaching that team in that first kind of tear down, tanking year, um, but they're going to have to do something. And uh, whether that's cutting bait with the quarterback, you know, giving him a few more weeks, um, you know, start talking about a new general manager. I don't know what the thing is that they have to do, but you have to do something. I mean ask ask the Browns, ask Hugh Jackson. Like you don't
5: get to you don't get to wait this long post rebuild to to make the playoffs.
1: Texans, Colts.
5: All right, last one of the day here. And look, the Texans control the clock in this one. Uh, More than 34 minutes of possession. So things went well for them. Things didn't go well for them. <laughs> this was, I don't know, I mean, this is kind of what, this is exactly what we thought the Texans would be this year, where, uh, I mean, look, we, we've we seen them, they, they beat the Jaguars. We saw them be very competitive with the Patriots last week. And this was a game where it just looked like a Colts team, which I I think is much better than their record would indicate. I think, uh, I think beef is real, and I think we are going to see the Colts right in it at the end of the season. But, uh, I mean, again, this just had a feel of, uh a professional team versus like a semi-professional team
7: another good game for Jonathan Taylor certainly and uh you know it does seem like in some respects that you know
3: it, you
7: know Carson Wentz I'm not ever going to say that a game where you're 11 of 20 um for 223 yards is 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 any sort of statement in any way shape or form but you know he is hitting on some of his deep balls i mean you know I think he was two for three on on shots of 20 yards or more. He was pretty good in the middle of the field as well. And so, I don't know. I mean, he, he's not quite there yet. You know, he's not the the guy that you would say, oh, it was totally worth trading this first round pick for. Um, but he, he's getting them there. And I don't know. The Colts are slowly turning this thing around. Um, and uh, I think they're going to be right there. I mean, no, nobody's running away with this division yet.
6: My take is that Gary did a good job ordering the outline, putting this game last. <laughs> Not a ton of analysis to offer on this one.
7: I, what do you think I, about this, Bengals <laughs> fans? That uh, you're in the, this is where he thinks that you, that you should be.
5: Right? Hang on, ha- hang on one second. I put them in the same section as Jacoby Brissett highlight throw in London. Probably, True. probably, the, probably the number one takeaway for UK fans from this game. And uh, and also look. This game might have been close, but Michael Badgley converts a PAT in the first mm-hmm. quarter, uh, adds a 41-yard field goal. Michael Badgley did go 4-for-4 four four on PATs and made his only field goal attempt of at this game. I'm just saying, the Chargers, they could, they could use him.
6: Interesting. Real X-factor there.
5: <laughs> mm-hmm. It was. The real X-factor in the Colts' 31-3 victory over the non-competitive Texans. The MMQB NFL Podcast is Jenny Vrentis, Connor Orr, and me, Gary Gramling. We are produced by Shelby Royson. SI's executive producer of podcast is Scott Brody. Thanks as always to senior podcast producer Dan Bloom for the most wonderful notes anyone in the industry could possibly get. Mark Moravik is emeritus editor of the MMQB, and Andy Benoit is the founder of the MMQB NFL podcast. Be sure to subscribe to this feed on Apple Podcasts, and once you do, please leave a rating and review because it really does help other people find the show, which is also available on Spotify, Stitcher, SI.com, and wherever else you listen to podcasts.